Greetings, my name's Andrew Sumner. My grandfather, Pop Smythe, bought me my first comic book in Liverpool, England when I was three years old, and I spent the next 50 years hurtling around the pop culture kaleidoscope, first as a fan and then as a journalist, editor, publisher and presenter. Along the way, I met a bunch of interesting people who will be joining me here. Creators, performers, professionals and public servants. We live in divisive, fractured times, but art and popular culture connect people from all viewpoints and from all walks of life. I'm often struck by the passions people enjoy, that they can set aside their differences for and agree on, whatever those passions are, whether I share them or not. And that spark, that moment of instinctive, connective agreement, that's what I call a hard agree. Our parents, having gone through the Second World War and all of that, you know, what we consider, you know, horrible inconveniences now, they would have been happy to, to exchange places with. Uh, exactly. Oh, it's it's so true. Mate, I, I couldn't agree more. I talk about this point all the time, and I think that's part of the reason we have Part of the reason, there's many complex reasons why we have climate change deniers, why we have anti-vaxxers, all of this kind of stuff, because people can't get out of this world of extreme convenience, that in fact we are the beneficiaries of science. That It's science that's brought us to this point, and it's allowed some people, it's almost like an episode of Star Trek where it's allowed some people to divorce themselves from the cause of their comfort, which is, is science and human ingenuity, not faith. Uh, and 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 people are, are taking this refuge into kind of faith and ignorance, uh, and uh, and aren't prepared to deal with the amendments that you have to make to retain what it is that we've got you know, as a result of human endeavour. I find it so fascinating. Yeah, it, it's definitely fascinating, but it's also scary as hell. But- that is exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah, I know for sure. No, t- it's absolutely terrible. Outside of. The, the the global catastrophe that we're living in at the moment. How have you been, mate? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Uh, I just wanted to ask for you. I've got the the fan on the air conditioner going. I don't know if you're picking that up. If I I'm not picking it up. I'm just getting your vocals. So yeah. no, Good. we're fine. We're absolutely fine. I lent in then, like you could hear it. it was, it was, but actually, it's all in my head. But yeah, no, I can just hear your vocals. I, Johnny, my editor, is going to say, "Man, why didn't you turn off the uh, the?" But I can't hear it at all. <laughs> well, if, you, if you want, I'll be happy to turn it off. It, 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 just to be safe to, for your uh, sound guy. Oh, now that I've, I've put the I, I've put the the volume right up, and I can hear it. So uh, I guess that's not such. A, if you don't mind, that's not such a bad thing. I hope you don't. Uh, if you start baking or your or your face turns purple, like like yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Fudd in in what's opera doc? I'll uh, I'll 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 tell you. All right, there we go. Yeah, excellent. So one of the things that we were talking about when we were corresponding the other day was after you'd listened to my Hard Agree episode with, with Dave Gibbons, you, you were saying, remind me to tell you about... Yeah, I hope I remember this right. You might have to double check this for them. Yeah. But um, my first trip over there was for UCAC in 85. Yeah. And I went to every UCAC for a decade after that. But yeah. that first, first one, I think, is where I met uh, Dave and... So neither in 85 or 86, when I was in my office at Marvel, I got a call from somebody who worked for Ripley's Believe It or Not. Yeah. And they were looking for someone to do a television, host a television program where they did episodes about Ripley's Believe It or Not, but someone who would sort of play the modern 
incarnation of Ripley and do sketches while they were talking about, you know, the episode or something like that. And someone had given them my name, which was like a huge mistake. I, you put me in front of a camera and it's like, oh, yeah, 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 you know, I'll be frozen. Plus, you know, drawing while, you know, thousands of people are watching me isn't going to make things any easier. Easier. So I, and then they said, they said something that mentioned that, you know, they, you know, I guess Britain was a big market for the Ripley's area. So I, I told them, well, you know, the guys you want to talk to are there are a couple of guys that I met over in Britain who are excellent artists, very personable. They look fabulous in the camera. So I mentioned uh, Gibbons and Bolton. Yeah, right. And, um, both both very good looking men and excellent artists. Yeah, and nice people. So so while they had the Ripley's folks had asked me to come in, you know, talk to them in their office in New York. So I went there and I mentioned Gibbons and Bolton. And the only one I think I had the number on me for some reason was Gibbons. So they call him up while I'm in the office and they start talking about, you know, we're looking for a host for Ripley's, believe it or not. And, and Gibbons doesn't know whether to take this seriously or not. <laughs> it, it turns out I forgot the date that this happened on was April 1st. <laughs> and it turned out that I guess that for Dave when he was growing up Ripley's was like a big thing he was you know interested in he, he liked yeah. that that strip so he thought someone was just playing a practical joke on him I'm not sure you know how that didn't happen or whatever but I think I'm not sure that may have eventually been the show that they had Dean Kane do the uh, oh right okay yeah yeah. No drawing involved after that. Yeah. Yeah. No, okay. No, of course. That makes sense. It, interesting because I've often thought, um, and one of the things I've talked to Dave about is that, you know, I, I think, I think Dave should do, do his own podcast because he's very personable and he's, he, he talks really well. And you can imagine Dave hosting a TV show. You know, he, he's, he's got that, yeah. he's got that extreme. I mean, he's an amazing artist. He's amazing talent, but he's got that extreme personability as well, which not everybody with that super high level of talent has that. Yeah. yeah, yeah I, I mean, for example, the, you know, the great Jack Kirby, you know, one of our, one of our mutual heroes, Steve Ditko, they're tremendous artists, but they're not guys that, I mean, Jack Kirby did go on camera quite a lot, but he, yeah. he was never, he was never a public speaker. And, and of course, Steve Ditko didn't want to engage with that at all. No. You know? Now, now I, at this moment, I will just say, welcome to Hard Agree. I'm Andrew Sumner, and, and today I'm privileged to be joined by artist, writer, teacher, editor, Carl Potts, best known for perhaps for creating Alien Legion, for his incredible run as an editor at Marvel Comics and for founding the Marvel Comics imprint, Epic Comics and also for overseeing the transformation of the Punisher from a minor supporting player into one of the key comic book characters of the 80s and a character that has abided since then pretty much in the image that you and the guys set up for him back then. So how are you? It's, it's good to see you, Carl. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. I do, I do want to correct one thing. I did not help found the Epic Empress. That was Archie Goodwin, who I had the unpleasant task of trying to fill the shoes of when he left yeah. Marvel to go to DC. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, it would be hard to name a tougher pair of shoes to try and fill than Archie Goodwin. So yeah. I did my best. 
Yeah, well, I think you did a great job. I, and, you know, I think I made that mistake because people, I, I, I actually should have known better because I do, of course, remember Archie Goodwin's time at Epic. But I think a lot of people associate you with that period of time. Mm. You know, so strong were the, were the, was your contribution, I think. I think that's the key. That was in, in the midst of that was when, that was around the time Marvel, the new owners of Marvel came up with this really bizarre situation where they decided to create five or actually six different publishing divisions each with its own editor-in-chief yeah and so and then right before then i get there were just before that tom defalco was the editor-in-chief and there were three of us that were executive editors and each executive editor oversaw a third of marvel's publishing line and my third included epic and, and a batch of the marvel stuff as well but yeah i mean that that that's a whole nother uh subject in itself i don't know when and how you want to get into that one yeah well i guess the way i kind of because the other thing you're very well known for of course is during your period of time as an editor you discovered and or mentored uh, a, a lot of very significant comic creators whether that's arthur adams or john bognove or, or jim lee mike mignola I, I, actually i'm going to ask you about somebody that i've never been sure my entire life whether i'm pronouncing his name correctly because I've never actually heard it said out loud, and I've, I've said it many times myself, and it ties into that period of time on The Punisher, actually, is Wills Portacio. How, how do I, have I got that right? Well, I've always said Wills Portacio, and Portacio. If, I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, he's never corrected me. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, fantastic artist. But so you you made a substantive like contribution or opened many doors for all of those guys, not the least of which and I did touch upon him was Jim Lee. You know, so so what before we talk about that, what was your particular route to getting into comics and working at Marvel? And when were you first exposed? to comics as a medium? <clears throat> well, kind of like you, I imagine, I grew up reading comics and, you know, initially I didn't buy them. My parents bought them. They were just interested in anything I would help me be interested in reading, which was pretty progressive back then because that was back during the time when comics were being bombarded by, you know, all of this uh, negativity from the, the Senate hearings and so and But they weren't buying me like EC comics. If I was like homesick from third grade, my mom would go to the drugstore and pick up a handful of comics and bring them to me. And they weren't the ones that <clears throat> I normally would have wanted, like, you know, the DC War books I was into. She'd be bringing home Lucille Ball comics and Herbie and, you know, things that uh, I normally wouldn't. But if they were comics, I was going to read them. But I I used to take my, you know, Saturday morning lawn mowing money down to the local variety store or drugstore, <clears throat> buy a candy bar and, and get at least one comic. And I started out when I was buying my own, I was buying the DC War comics mostly or yeah. occasionally some of the other imprints. Uh, and I, that's where I first started noticing differences in artists. Yeah. Yeah. Hubert and Heath and what's his name? Quite a few war comics back in the day. I don't know if I remember that, but who was the guy? That did Johnny Cloud, excellent artist. Uh, uh, was it? I uh, did Severin do Johnny Cloud. I can't remember. Was it John Severin? Was it somebody else? No, I saw him later. It'll come. Oh, uh, Severin did Cloud on the Losers because Severin was did a, did a lot of great issues of the Losers. Yeah, I'm sure it'll. 
Irv Novick. That's yeah, right. oh, Novick. Yeah, yeah, great, great artist. Did, did, did a lot of Batman as well back, you know, late after that, didn't he? Very versatile artist. Yeah, yeah. And there were some, you know, other more stylized things on some of the other books, like the Gunnar and Sarge thing. Like they had Jerry Grandinetti, who was a very yeah. Unique, yeah, and he was then, a unique so, artist, wasn't he? Grandinetti, yeah. man. And somebody else I got to know later when I was working at Continuity, he worked up there was Jack Abel. But my father was a Navy man for much of his career. And I used to take go with him to the PX in Alameda, California. And they used to have a big selection of comics there. And my first exposure to Marvel was I'm looking for the war books. And I see the first issue of Sergeant Fury. <clears throat> and I thought, this is wonky looking thing here. It's just so bizarre. It's like nothing else. So I picked it up, took it home, read it. It was just this incredibly bombastic thing. But Kirby's actual rendering style did not appear to me, appeal to me. But I found myself every day going back to my drawer where I kept the comics, opening up, pulling everything out and paging through it again. It wasn't until I was much older that I realized that it was his sense of dynamics and his visual storytelling that had me hooked. It wasn't the actual rendering style. <clears throat> and then there, as I started buying Sergeant Fury, I saw house ads for the other Marvel titles, and I started picking them up, and that's how I discovered Ditko, and Ditko ended up being my first big influence as an artist. Yeah. I just uh, went on from there. After that, I was buying almost exclusively Marvel titles. I dropped most of the DC stuff for quite a while. Yeah. Okay, so, so Marvel became your primary focus at that point. Yeah. And, you know, I was always drawing as far as as long as I can remember. And I would occasionally try and draw comic-related stuff. But it hadn't really occurred to me that there were people, you know, making a living doing this until maybe some late high school. But I, I didn't think I would ever have a chance of doing it. First off, you had to be living in New York at that point to do that. And I was growing up in the San Francisco. So oh, I remember, too, my, my junior year in high school, I was doing this big combination painting illustration and my high school art teacher looked at it and goes where did you learn anatomy and I go Steve Ditko <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I had to explain to him who Steve Ditko was yeah uh, but so when I went to college initially I was torn between pursuing commercial art music and aquatic or marine biology and ichthyology and a counselor there said, oh, I saw, see you were in the high school orchestra. We'll make you a music major. And I, I started out in the music program, but quickly switched over to the commercial art program. And I, I figured I'd have a better chance of uh, a career in there than I did in music, even though I was in a band back then. It was mandatory if you grew up in California to be in a band. Did, what, did you, what did you play, Cole? A uh, combination. I started out mostly on bass. I had a copy of McCartney's Hofner, a Japanese copy. Yeah. And then switched over most of the time to uh, guitar. I had a Guild Starfire Three from the early 60s that I still have today. I really like that. So somewhere around in early 75, I'd been showing my artwork to some local comic book pros who'd moved from New York to California. And that included Jim Starlin and Alan Weiss. Yeah. were both very nice to me. And whenever I had a new batch of samples, they'd invite me over to give them critiques on it. And one day, Starlin asked me if I wanted to help over like a four-day weekend penciling an emergency issue of Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter for Denny O'Neill. So I stayed over there at his place with Alan Weiss, and we 
bashed out this thing. I did mostly backgrounds and some background figures. And then poor Al Milgram had to quickly ink it and try and make it look like it was somewhat consistent because it's hard to find a more different sense of rendering styles than Starlin and Weiss. But it, it kind of like really made me feel that I might have a shot if I moved to New York and, and tried to break in. So I decided to do that. I told Starlin, and he said, do you know anybody there? And I did not know anybody. I was very naive. I'd never moved away from home before. You know, after I had played, paid for my plane ticket, I only had like 100 or 200 bucks in my pocket. Extremely naive, which I always say is the nice word for ignorant. But so Starlin says, let me make a few calls. So he calls up Milgram, and, well, Al Milgram and Walt Simonson, who are roommates in apartment building in Forest Hills, Queens. And says, this kid's coming out here. Can you put him up until he gets his feet under him? And they said, sure. So I fly out there, knock on the door. These guys welcome me in. They're very nice. And in that same apartment building are living Bernie Wrightson and Howard Chaikin. Wow. And, they're all, and they're, they're, they're all constantly palling around together. And, yeah. uh, and I'm like, you know, my head is like dizzy from, from this experience. Yeah. And Starlin had decided to time one of his occasional trips back to New York to line up new work around the same time. So I think it was my second day in New York. He takes me into the Marvel offices to show my portfolio around. And I show um, my work to Archie Goodwin, who at that point was in charge of the Marvel Black and White comics magazines. And he liked one of the pieces I did in there, uh, a science fiction piece. He said, I can use this as a subscription ad for the science fiction magazine. And eventually he had Walt Simonson ink it. So as Archie is buying this piece from me, his assistant is coming out with a stack of unsolicited submissions that had come in over the previous months that had never been answered before with typed up, you know, rejection, nice rejection letters on them for Archie to sign. So um, while we're waiting for the voucher to go through or whatever, Archie's going through these things assignment. And it turns out he gets to the one I'd sent in like two months before. So as he's buying a piece from me, he signs my rejection letter and smiles and hands it over to me. So that, <laughs> that was my introduction to Archie Goodwin's sense of humor. And, uh, and Starlin took me into the what was the British reprints then were done in New York. Yeah. And they were all for the weekly format you had there. So they chopped those 22 page stories in half. And they would need new splash pages for the second halves. And a lot of times they'd assign them to new folks to test them out. Yeah. So now, I now, watched, now, Carl, let me ask you, what you, about what year are we talking about at this point? The summer of 75. And if you recall, that's when Atlas folded. Yes. And all the, people, all the people that had gone to Atlas were now scrambling back to Marvel and DC for work. So I picked the worst possible time <laughs> trying to break in. So, uh, so the, the British books that you were working on would have been Mighty World of Marvel, Spider-Man Comics Weekly, The Avengers, all those books, right? I guess they never they never showed me what the finished product looked like. They just said, you know, they they give me a copy or tell me to go buy a copy, and they yeah. reimburse me of of whatever the original comic was, and said, you know, do a splash page before page number, you know, yeah. eleven or whatever. Now, this is so fascinating to me because as, an, as a British fan, you know, I had two ways that I consumed Marvel. One is the actual Marvel books when they would make it over here, of which I bought a ton, you know, and because I grew up in Merseyside where, where American comic books were used as ballast mm -hmm. in the returning ships into the port of Liverpool. So wow. furni you, 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 British furniture would go out to New York 
And these empty ships would come back full of comic books and, and vinyl records and whatnot as ballast. So that's why in, in Liverpool and Merseyside, you could always get readily get hold of a ton of American comic books. And, and so I had access to a lot of Marvels, but at the same time, from the moment that Marvel UK started, which is in about 1972, I bought all of the Marvel Weekies probably for 10 years, you know, which, as you know, were, were it's exactly as you say, the original story split into two. Now and again, some word balloons would be altered to put anglicised words in and things like that. Or, or strange, you know, changes. It'd be like, um, like the Red Ghost um, was renamed the Mad Ghost, for example. Yeah, because the original the original appearance of the Red Ghost are, are very much tied into the Cold War, and in you know in in Britain in the in the seventies that wasn't really a cultural touchstone any of the America Russia stuff. So any of that stuff got edited out of the books, you know, and, and edited out of the dialogue. So they they changed a couple of characters along the way like that, but. Mm. But interesting, I, I've always wondered when I saw things like newly drawn splash pages and all that kind of stuff. I've always wondered why they were who, so poorly drawn. I've always <laughs> wondered who did it. And the funny thing is, in all the conversations we've had in the past, I never realized that you were one of those guys. That is fascinating to me. Yeah, I think I did, you know, between six and 10 of them. There's a group somewhere that is actually into those. I was contacted by uh, somebody a while back that. They actually collect the original art for those for some reason. I guess it holds some nostalgic uh, appeal to them because it certainly isn't the uh, the drawing ability exhibited on those things. So I sold a lot of the, the pages that I had to to this group. But I was talking about Starlin introduced me to the editor at the time, whose name escapes me, for doing the British reprints. And when I walked out of there with those assignments, I found out years later that the only reason I got those assignments was that the editor took Starlin aside out of my earshot and said, I'll give this kid some work if you do a cover for me. And Starlin did that. He never told me. I found out from Al Milgram years later that that happened. So wow. Starlin was a major factor in helping me break in, particularly during that summer of 75. Oh, what a great story. Yeah, he, he's got major, you know, brownie points in my book. Uh, yeah. So a couple of years before at the San Diego Con, the first San Diego Con I went to was in 73. And I showed my portfolio to Neil Adams, who looked at it with an expression of disgust on his face and, and turned around. And as he turned around to walk away, he said, these aren't even worth commenting on. So I was like stunned and somehow oh, managed wow. to, to, to stammer out, well, well, can you at least tell me what to work on? Yeah. And so he pivoted back around, proceeded to name every aspect of drawing and design, you know, that there is. And then he said, if I worked really hard for at least 18 months, he'd be willing to look at it again. So yeah. when I moved to New York, I called up Continuity Studios, which he, Dick Giordano, ran. And and I told him I was in town, reminded him that, about what he said. So they had me up to look at my portfolio, which had improved somewhat uh, since those times. But they were beginning to package these three large black and white comics magazines for Charlton that were based on TV shows at the time, Six Million Dollar Man, Emergency, and Space 1999. And they hired uh, four or five of us uh, young guys to pencil it. And then they would ink it up there by committee, what you know we used to be called Krusty Bunkers, I guess, uh, this kind of evolving group uh, of inkers that were headed by uh, Dick Giordano and Neil. And so I had my earliest work, I was having it being inked by Dick Giordano, 
Neil Adams, Russ Heath, and then most of the backgrounds are being done by future stars, Terry, Terry Austin and Bob Wyachek. And so the way I learned up there mostly wasn't because anybody was giving me lessons. It, that was pretty rare. It was by seeing what I originally turned in and watching it evolve as these other people worked over it. But it was a, it was a great learning experience. And I also got into actually making a living up there by getting into storyboards for ad agencies because I could make a lot more money in the same time period working for uh, ad agencies than I could for drawing comics. Yeah, very interesting. And then at some point, I, well, I guess in early 1983, I got a call from Jim Shooter, who was editor-in-chief at Marvel at the time. And I'd met him at some of the social functions that uh, had been, you know, the, the New York comics industry. They, we would play volleyball all day on Sundays in Central Park. Every first Friday of every month, Neil Adams would have a, a gathering at his apartment in New York for the comics industry. I, believe it or not, that's actually where I met Steve Ditko for the first time, at a party. Uh, wow. Well, how was that, Carl? How was, how, what were the circumstances of that? And how was it meeting him? How many times did you meet him over the years? I don't know, maybe six times. And then wow. we correspond, correspond occasionally. He, he you know, did... I, did, somehow Neil Adams had talked Ditko into showing up at this party, which was very <laughs> unditko-like. Um, yeah. And when I got there, he was sitting on the sofa by himself, and everybody was too afraid to go near him. Uh, <laughs> and and Starlin walks over to me, and Starlin had known Ditko for a long time because when Starlin was still a fan trying to break in, he'd come to New York, and he just looked Ditko up and went up to his place, and Ditko let him in, and they would just talk and shoot the breeze. And so Starlin walks me over to Ditko and says, Steve, this is Carl. He thinks you're God. Then Starlin pivoted and walked away. And <laughs> that would be tough enough to, to, to you know, move forward with for anybody, but especially for Ditko, who, due to his Ayn Randian objectivist points of view, thinks, you know, all religion is is opiate for the masses. And so to be compared to a god was probably not a real compliment. But we managed to talk for a little while. And then um, several years later, when I was on staff at Marvel, when I shooter asked me to, to join the staff as an editor to replace Al Milgram, who was leaving to go freelance. But Ditko had started working for Marvel again, and he'd come by the offices sometimes and stick his head in the door of the editors he knew. So he would often stop by and, and chat for a while, but usually he'd go on about some socio-political topic. And, you know, he had such a, a dogmatic view of those things that anytime you put up any sort of a, a but or a challenge or something, he had a very dogmatic response. So it was, it was hard to have a real conversation on those particular topics. Yeah. So you you learn quickly just to sit there and kind of nod and <coughs> Yeah. And, you know, and you know, he could go on a long time about this stuff, but there's no way in hell I'm kicking Steve Ditko out of my office. Right uh, on, of course. Yeah, of course. I get it. I, so I get it. One time I'd known he'd done some humor stuff like it cracked and 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 for Wally Wood on Whitson and so on. So I was getting ready to put together the first issue of our new self-parody magazine called What The? And I asked Ditko if he would draw a story for that. And he said, I will if it only parodies villains. I don't parody heroes. And, Very interesting. Um, so I, I asked Mark Grunewald to write a story and Mark did it under 
uh, a pseudonym because it was a parody, I think, related to Secret Wars. Nike was a little afraid from uh, <laughs> feedback, feedback from on high, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that shoots would have a bit of an issue. So I used an early, you know, Monty Python name, which was Gwyn Dibley. That's, that was the name they were considering yeah. using on Monty Python. So that was his by, byline. And then uh, I got John Severin to ink it. So it, I was really happy with that. Wow. I've, you know what? That's something I've not seen, but I would imagine that Ditko and Severin was a great combination. I think they did stuff in Cracked Magazine too together. Yeah. But I figured if... Uh, you know, Severin to me is kind of in a similar school to Wally Wood, and Wally Wood always looked great over Ditko. I, I could, so. you know what, Carl, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, I, I'm a massive fan of Ditko and Wally Wood as a combination. I, I, now that I'm saying this to you, I know that I've never seen uh, uh, Severin ink Ditko, so I'll have to go and find that and see it. But, uh, but uh, I think I, it's the first issue of what the, that that he okay. did for me. I think it's the first. Issue. I've I've got to go check that out because what I love about Dick and Wood together is, is on one level you wouldn't expect them to work together, but in fact it's a beautiful combination, and I loved what they did with I love what they did with Stalker. In fact, one of the things I've got here in in uh, Sumner HQ is is a letter that Ditko uh, wrote to me about those Stalker issues where he responded yeah. to my letter in his usual fashion, and I also really loved. And this brings in, you know, your, your old pal Archie Goodwin as well. I really loved the uh, the first two issues of Atlas is the Destructor, and and that's 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 you know Goodwin on the the script and uh, Dick Homewood on the on the art, and that looks fantastic too. Yeah, Ditko, you know, a lot of people have trouble inking him. Uh, first off, he, what he was turning in his pencils, and when he came back to Marvel, were, were not very tight, but all of the 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 Ditko esque construction was there. And so if you got the wrong anchor on them, it could be easily messed up because they could misinterpret things or, or add stuff that wasn't really necessary. But one of the best people, I think, that, that really kept the Ditko flavor while modernizing it was Craig Russell on ROM. You know, it had this really decorative line work that brought out Ditko stuff. And then when I was overseeing the Phantom 2040 comic, I asked I, Ditko I, I to... I love that, by the way. I've got that. I've yeah. got that. Yeah. I asked Ditko to, to pencil that, and I wanted to do a different but still retain Ditko. So I asked Bill Reinhold, who yeah. did, I think, another fabulous job of retaining Ditko while adding a whole new sense of dimensionality and, and texture to it. Because that was a uh, really new – I love that show, actually, Phantom 2040. I think it's got two uh, – it's got great scripts, but it's got, I think, alongside the, the work that Andrew Romano did on, on the Batman series, I think it was one of the first shows to really elevate the st- I think I think I think the casting director on that show was a guy called Stu Rosenberg, who I think passed mm-hmm. away relatively recently. But I think Phantom Twenty Forty is one of those shows that really elevated the vocal performances. And even when you listen to it now, even though the animation is sometimes limited, the quality of the soundtrack—it's like watching listening to mini radio plays. And mm-hmm. then it has that amazing Peter Chung art direction as well, the Aeon Flux guy. So it looks really unusual. I, 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 I was, I was fascinated. We've got 
Yeah. Have you, do you it's remember been, watching the show? I remember seeing bits and pieces of it, but I don't know that I sat down and watched whole episodes. So I'll have to, you got me interested in checking them out. Yeah. Now. What, what, if, you, if you look it up, what you should be able to find relatively easily is in Australia, which is, you know, the Phantoms a really big deal over in Australia. They released season one of Phantom 2040 on DVD. And I think that DVD is still quite easy to come by. So, so uh, you know, uh, from Amazon and whatnot. But I would definitely recommend checking it out because I think it's a, it's a it's a brilliant show, wildly underrated. I'll, I'll do that. There was something else. Oh, Ditko, we were talking about yeah. how one of the times he visited me in the office. It was while I was editing Doctor Strange, and I'm one of the world's biggest Ditko fans. And Ditko tells me that when he quit Marvel in the mid '60s, he had already plotted and pencil the next two episodes of Dr. Strange for Strange Tales that he never turned in. And he's telling this to me, the editor of Dr. Strange and a huge Dicko yeah. fan. So I'm like, you know, my eyes get wide. I'm drooling. I'm going, Oh, you get, we'll do a special, we'll bring that in. We'll do, you know, and he goes, no, no, no. I don't like people, you know, seeing my old stuff and comparing it to my new stuff. And I go, well, can you at least bring it in so I can see it? I'd love to see it. And he said, I, I don't want to, their chance of you know Xerox is being made and those circulating. I go, Steve, they're not gonna leave your hands. I'll look over your shoulder while you slowly page through them. <laughs> yeah. And he, he chuckled and he goes, No, they're in my sister's attic in Pennsylvania and that's where they're staying. And I think he took a bit of delight in torturing me. So later on, you know, after he passed away, I, I started communicating with one of his uh, nephews, Mark. Who Mark, is, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know Mark. He's, he's sort, a good guy. Yeah, he's sort of, the, I guess, the, the lead front-facing relative of the group of uh, heirs that to, for Ditko's work. And I asked him about those pages, and he was kind of coy. He didn't really commit one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, so I'm hoping that they'll show up in this this Ditko show that's going to be opening in Jonestown, Pennsylvania soon. I hope so. But the other Ditko story I have is when I first moved to New York, I went to a New York comic convention and there was a table, actually a whole bunch of tables together that just were stacks of original art by all these different artists. And it was being run by a major comics pro, a well-respected comics pro. And uh, I'm looking through them and there was a page from Creeper number one in there. That was $75. And at the time in 1975, that was my month's food budget. So I ate oatmeal and hot dogs for a month to, to, to buy that thing. And it wasn't like, didn't have any huge shots of the Creeper, it had a couple of small shots. But it was the first original art I'd, I'd bought. And appropriately enough, it was Ditko. So when he came by the Marvel offices one day, I mentioned to him, I, I know you don't normally autograph things, but I bought this pay years ago. If I bring it in, is there any chance I can get you to sign it? And he goes, no, I don't autograph things. And I never got any of those creeper pages back. They were all stolen out of DC. So I felt horrible. And yeah. I, I brought the page and I kept it in my flat files in the Marvel offices. And the next time Ditko came by, he was standing in my doorway pontificating about the evils of the UN or something uh, like that. And while he was talking, I went over the flat files, took out the creep original, walked over to it, handed it to him without skipping a beat and whatever he was talking about. He took it, put in his portfolio, zipped it up and didn't, didn't acknowledge the exchange in any way. And that didn't bother me because I knew from his point of view, if someone is informed that they're in possession of stolen property, it's 
their obligation to give it back to the rightful owner. Yeah. And you don't thank people for doing what's expected of them. So I felt really bad about losing that page, but it, yeah, it gave me a great Ditko story. But years later, um, I wrote to him and asked him if he still had that page and if he might be willing to sell it to me now. And, you know, as you know, from your experience, he usually wrote fairly truncated responses. Yes. That, yeah. And uh, he said no, something like, no, no original, sorry, or something like that. And so that's something else I asked Mark Ditko about. If they find that somewhere, if it still exists, I'd love an opportunity to buy that page back. It means a lot to me. So I, I don't know that they, they've come across it, uh, but I'll ask them when I, when I go to the show. Well, I, I wish I could get to that show. Obviously, in the near future, that's not going to be possible, given the fact that international travel is somewhat impaired and definitely flights between the, the UK and the US just aren't happening at the moment. Do you know how long that show is going to run for, Carl? I believe it's supposed to run through the beginning of September and towards the end of September, they're also going to have like a, a mini convention there. They, yeah. They've asked me to give my visual storytelling seminar then. So I'll be going out there again. I'm going to try and go to the opening, which is uh, next week. And then I'm going to go back for that mini convention. Mate, I would absolutely love to hear about how, how you get on there and what you see. I mean, it would be, a, I, I imagine they must have those two Doctor Strange issues and it, it, stories and it, it for that to surface at some point that's just like that's a bit of a ditko super fan holy grail isn't it oh yeah and then it makes you wonder what stuff that is along those lines that exists that he didn't bother telling anybody about or anybody yeah. outside of the family or maybe the family didn't even know what's in those those trunks in the attic you know yeah. until he passed away um so it'll be I'm, interesting. I'm fascinated, really, as to what the what the conversations between Dick Cohn and his family were in terms of the stuff that he left left them, because you get the sense that it's whatever he whatever he had in terms of his artwork, they've probably got it now. Uh, and if that's the case, it, you know whether it's stuff they ultimately intend to work on getting it pub some of it published like will those will those Doctor strange stories see the light of day officially published by marvel i think that would be amazing if they did that yeah and you know they they should be able to these days be able to, to scan from you know even if his pencils aren't super tight but you know you got to remember this is mid-60s so his pencils were probably even if they were for him to ink himself they were probably tighter than the pencils he was doing in the, the mid late 80s yeah. Um, but he he definitely made a, a major impression on my life. I can't say I uh, I ascribe to Anne Randian objectivism. I, there were things I I wanted to try and ask him in conversations, but after my first attempts of breaking through the dogma, I, it didn't work. It's like you know characters like. Mr. A, which I think he feels embodies that that philosophy. Yeah. You know, if if you're supposed to be a law and order person, how can you constantly be breaking laws, even if it's just uh, trespassing, breaking and entering, yeah. assault, battery, without you know being a, a member of the law enforcement? These are kind of philosophical things I wanted to get into with them, but I, I, I after a while, I just decided that it, it would it would probably get me nowhere. Yeah. Would, would would he entertain conversations about the genesis of his characters, any of that kind of stuff? Or is it that was that just not a conversation he was interested in having? I can't honestly say I asked him about 
that I, I know I'd known at then that there was still some controversy about who did what on Spider-Man. Yeah. And um, I knew he was sensitive about Stan taking more credit than Steve thought he should. Yeah. And I felt that that did, you know, that was a scab that had been scratched way too many times. He didn't need me scratching that again. But as far as other things go like that, you know, I think it's one of those things too. I just thought that, you know, every few weeks, Steve Ditko comes in, drops by, you know, I, I'm always going to have time to ask him this or that or anything. I'm kind of busy today. You know, I don't want to, so I think I'm guilty of, of that, but there's all kinds of great conversations I'd love to have. Ironically enough, you know, he says he never autographs stuff, but as you know, from, his letters, he usually both prints and signs his name. Absolutely. On, yeah. on them. So I have his autograph. It's just not on that Creeper original. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a funny experience with him, actually, when he, when, when we, I, 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 there are fans who made a career out of like swapping letters with Steve. I didn't because I was conscious of the fact that he wants, particularly towards the last, two or three years of his life, a lot of people, persons of a certain age who are massive Ditko fans. And, you know, I like yourself, as you know, I'm a huge Ditko fan. I mean, he's hands down my favourite artist. And But I also became aware of the fact that a lot of people in our kind of age bracket were hitting him up with, with, with letters left, right and centre. So I, I didn't want to, you know, get into... And you have a lot of people proclaiming that they had carried on a correspondence with Ditko for years. And sometimes I don't really feel that's the case. I think it's more a case that he was politely responding to their letters because that's what he did. Correspondence is a different thing where there's more of a meeting of mind and minds. And I never really fooled myself with thinking I was corresponding with Steve, but I, I sent one letter, which was you know about my my experience with American comic books that came via my grandfather and what that meant to me and how much I liked his partnership with Wally Wood and how much, you know, I valued the destructor and yeah. the stalker. And he wrote me back a very nice detailed, long one page answer about my, my grandfather's experiences in the war and about him, his, his partnership with Wood and how much he enjoyed working with Wally Wood, loved working with Wally Wood. Yeah, and it was great. And I was so blown away by, I could add, add expected a Ditko two lines maybe, ever got anything, but he wrote me a whole page. Yeah. And, yeah, and I love that so much that it, it, it's framed on the wall elsewhere in, in Sumner HQ. And so I then thought, oh man, it was lovely of him to do that. So I wrote back to him and I sent him this book that had just been published at the time, which was a was a photographic study of water towers of New York because as an Englishman, before I ever saw a single New York water tower, that to me just meant two things, Spider-Man and Steve Ditko, because the first time I saw a water tower was, I didn't even know what they were for ages when I was a kid, from Spider-Man <laughs> comics, yeah. Wasn't you, there an early Doctor Strange episode where he hides his physical body inside a water tower and his ectoplasmic form? Goes absolutely right 100 that 100 so i so i sent this book to him said hey steve i really appreciated the time you spent on that on that uh, last response and i always i always associate your art with with the water towers of new york the poetry of the water towers of new york so i thought you might like this book and i sent it to him and about two months later i got a response back and the response was absolutely brilliant. It was completely opposite to my first letter, the one that's framed. And it was like, Andrew, I have absolutely no idea why you've sent me this. Water Towers have not featured in my work since I worked for DC and Marvel. And that was 30 years ago. 
question mark, exclamation mark, question mark, exclamation mark, question mark, exclamation mark. That was it. Yeah, that was absolutely it. You know, and I almost thought, okay, no, Steve, it's just a present because I thought since I associate you with that, I thought you might enjoy reading the book at some point. And I thought, um, you know what, I think I'm going to do, I think this is a good place to park this. Yeah. Because yeah, he'll probably <laughs> feel on a band to respond in some way, but it will be the same thing again. And actually, I, I agree to think that response is pretty funny, to be honest. I think sometimes it might be a matter of like what mood he was in the day he was doing his correspondence or his yeah. responding correspondence type things too. One of the last things I exchange with them in correspondence was for years now it should have been published already but uh, we're running way behind I, i've been working on a huge world war ii graphic novel with bill reinhold and based in part of my family's history and bill's been doing it in ink wash and then we shoot the ink wash and turn it into sepia tone so it has that kind of 40s newsreel look to it so i sent ditko some pages from that and he sent a response some long time you know you know, Bill Reinhold, really good artist. And I sent that on to Bill. That made his day. That was, I think that might have been the last time we corresponded. And, and uh, uh, by the way, what's uh, uh, let's talk about that book of yours in a second, because let's close out the the, the uh, Ditko part of this conversation. Thank you for getting into this, Carl, because it was a big part of what I wanted to talk to you about. I know that you hold them in equal regard to myself. And also I know that you had a lot of dealings with them, which I only wish that I had. Uh, and you're probably the first person in my acquaintance that's, that met him more than once or twice very briefly. I mean, a, another kind of mutual acquaintance of ours who's a good mate of mine, Bob Wayne, he only ever met Ditko once when he was in the DC offices and had like, uh, I mean, you know, Bob Wayne's met everybody, but he only met Ditko the once. But to have the kind of length of, of um, acquaintance you had with him, given how much you hold Ditko in high regard, that must have felt pretty amazing. Yeah, and someone else you should talk to, I think, if you... Uh, it would be Starlin, not only yeah. because of his gargantuan place in the industry and, and how much uh, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been milking his work, but um, yeah. now he's the one that uh, introduced me to Ditko, and he knew Ditko from years before then when he was still a fan, when he actually got to visit him in person. So he, he told me once that Ditko had done this, this book for himself about the basics of you know, folds and drapery on, on different body parts from different positions. He just done yeah. them all from every angle. So he knew the patterns to, to draw. He'd done like this little catalog of it for himself. I wish, I hope that that's something that is airs fine and we'll, we'll have at the show. I got my fingers crossed. We'll find out soon. Yeah, mate, I, I literally, I can't, I cannot wait to, I cannot wait to find out what's in that show. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about your experience there and see what actually what actually happened. Before we close out, there's two things I'd like to talk about. One of which is your, your war book that you're just talking about. Let's leave that for the for the close of this episode. The the other thing I'd just like to get into is the process, the 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 sequence of events that led to your involvement with the Punisher and that transformative moment when the Punisher went from being just that kind of supporting player to, to what he became. How did that all come about, Carl? I didn't really have much of an interest in the, the character. The um, Then Joe Duffy, who was working on the Epic side with Archie Goodwin, she was an editor-writer at Marvel and she was a, an Epic editor. And Stephen Grant, and Mike Zek, they both approached me around the same time. I'm not sure who came first with Punisher projects. Yeah. Joe had, I think, 
when I when I go back and think about it, I think Archie Goodwin is the one who sort of created the version of the Punisher that ended up becoming popular because his, his original incarnation as a foil for Spider-Man and so on was a very different yeah. uh, look and feel. And Archie had written two Punisher stories for two different Marvel black and white magazines. Yeah, Marvel um, Suprax and Marvel Preview, right? There you uh, go. Better, better memory than me. Um, I, I, I have those and still have them in pretty good condition to this day, you know, from when I originally bought them as a kid. I, I just loved those two issues and reread them constantly for a long time. And when I think about it, I think that those may have been what inspired Frank Miller's take on the character for the yeah. guest stars in, in Daredevil. And then those also were probably what inspired Joe Duffy, who was very close with Archie and Stephen Grant. So I think Archie's influence is probably something that gets lost in the shuffle with them. But then, you know, Joe, I really like, you know, her story. And then uh, through Czech Diction, I discovered Jorge Zavino, who was just an amazing artist. He started turning in pages uh, in small batches and he's sort of an artist artist. A lot of the fans didn't really get his stuff, but I guess in a way, sort of like Toth, that the pros love it. The fans are kind of like, eh. Yeah. But so whenever news that a new batch of Jorge Zavino Punisher pages had come into my office, for the next week, I'd get uh, a string of professionals coming up to the office to go through my flat files to check them out. Dennis Cowan was usually the first one in, in yeah. to get the news. But then Zek and Grant had uh, proposed their series to me. And I, I don't know for sure, but someone told me once that they'd hit up most of the other editors with the idea and no one thought the Punisher would be worth doing as a miniseries. So he had no superpowers. He was an anti-hero. He used real world weaponry. It wasn't any fantastic thing. And they felt he was just like a one note villain, but I'd always loved Zek's work and I liked Grant's take on the character. So I agreed to do that. And when it got done, it turned out to be this humongous hit. Yeah. And the reason I thought I might have a shot is at the time in other popular culture, there were things like the Eastwood Dirty Harry movies or the Bronson Death Wish movies that were out there that were sort of a similar note. And that's so there might be something out there in the audience waiting to be fulfilled. And, and there was, and of course, it was at the absolute peak of uh, men's adventure fiction. So, so at that point, you had. It was at the height of the popularity of all the pinnacle characters like the Destroyer and the Executioner and the Butcher and the, the Penetrator and the Death Merchant. There was, a, I mean, there was a whole, do you remember there's a whole like ton of them? I mean, the Destroyer is quite different in tone, but the rest of them are all identical. The story I'd heard of the others, I had paid no attention to. So anyhow, so we decided to do a new ongoing series and I started, started trying to figure out exactly what was going on with this character, the way I wanted to make sure that he was portrayed or not portrayed. Because when it got popular, I was getting bombarded with uh, guest star requests from all the other editors to guest star them in their books. And you have to approve the plot of the characters you're the caretaker for. So, you know, I'm seeing these ridiculous things come in where, you know, they the easiest thing you know, the laziest thing that a writer can do is say, oh, you know, he's this you know, nut that case that, you know, just goes out there and shoots criminals. So we'll have him go even more bonkers and shoot litter bugs and jaywalkers. And, you know, it's like the laziest 
creative thing you could think of. So I decided to try and figure out exactly what made this guy tick. And I decided that any Punisher project that I worked on, either as an editor or creator, I wanted to basically have it be where he is punishing himself. He is he has tremendous guilt and survivor's guilt over surviving the mob rub out of his family. And yeah. by attacking violent criminals beyond just those who were responsible for killing his family, he's he's rationalizing that he will hopefully prevent others from experiencing what his family experienced. But probably subconsciously, more than consciously, he knows at some point he's going to be killed or maimed and pay the price he should have paid for failing to protect his family. And nothing he does ever should bring him joy. He never gets satisfaction from an accomplished mission. It's just on to the next one. He's throwing himself into these dangerous situations. And anybody he, you know, gets close to usually isn't long for this world because of his lifestyle. And he usually either perpetuates or starts ongoing cycles of violence that never really ends. He hardly ever actually really solves anything. Um, So I wanted to make it clear that this was not a hero in the typical sense of the term, and this was not somebody you'd ever want to emulate. But occasionally I'd get letters from people who thought, you know, oh yeah, yeah, I'd like to be just like this guy. And it would drive me nuts because I think you're missing the whole point. But when I was promoted to executive editor, you're you're not allowed to oversee books you work on. So when I was I started writing and doing the layouts for Punisher War Journal, the book was assigned to the only editor that had room in their schedule for it. And it wasn't somebody that I thought was a good editor, much less someone who knew anything about the character and cared about it. And they started doing some stuff that I, I really did not think fulfilled the vision that I just laid out. And, you know, they started establishing some strange stuff that, like he built a torture chamber in his warehouse, which makes no sense on any level. And that in his downtime, which he does not have because he's obsessed with his mission, uh, his downtime, he hunts bear. He's a member of the NRA. All this kind of stuff that just turned my hair gray. So, but when I was promoted, I, I could no longer even oversee the regular Punisher book that I wasn't writing because executive editors then were banned from doing hands-on editing. They were overseeing groups of editors. And so total control of the Punisher went over to this editor that had been on War Journal that I did not uh, think had a hand on it. And they, they, by sheer luck, he had some good people that worked on it and turned out some really good stories. But there was a lot of stuff in there I didn't think made sense and I think took the character in directions that I didn't think made sense and kind of glorified aspects of the character I didn't think should be glorified. And these days, you know, you see things now like there's some police departments that have adopted the skull emblem that drives me batty because the last thing I want my cops to associate with as a vigilante. This is exactly what I was going to ask you about because I'd heard about some of what you're talking about from a in a conversation I once had with 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 Mike Barron talking about other things but he was talking because I thought he was great on the Punisher yeah wherever his head's at now back then he was I thought he was amazing on the Punisher right but he talked about some of those very strange plot decisions that were taken once you were off the book. And he was at pains to say, by the way, when X, Y, Z happened, Carl Potts was off the book then. That's why all that, why, that's why these things went down. You know, I think, I mean, if I remember correctly, there was a, there was a storyline where 
like literally the pigmentation of the of the of the Punisher's like skin is changed or whatever. There's all this weird stuff going on for a period of time, you know. And uh, yeah, Baron was very very negative about all of that. No, that's that's good to know. I, I'm, yeah. I'm glad to hear the. Um, but I think uh, you know the fact that the character kind of was starting to spin out of control there is you know, one of the reasons why it ended up just basically fading away and dying on the vine. And, you know, just the fact that the military, I thought was bad enough of which some military units were adopting the, the skull, but to have the police do it was, just, that was really, I don't but want anything I, to do yeah, that, no, that identifies with the Punisher. <laughs> no, I mean, it's tremendously unnerving. And I, I, I was very interested in your take on that. Your take on that is like, my take on that, of course, we don't have armed police over here. So, you know, but the idea of, you know, you get serving police officers, let alone soldiers, you know, daubing themselves with the the Punisher logo. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's scary stuff, isn't it? I mean, you know. I, I, I would hope that whatever officers are in charge of those units would do some healthful re-education. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely right. Stamp, stamp it out. But I think, I think an era of the of the. I I love the uh, the early Baron, some of the Dixon books as well. Particularly like Mike Baron's run as a writer. I like the stuff that I particularly loved it when he was paired with Wills Portacio. Thought that was great, and I thought they've worked very well together on the character. Yeah, when Mike and most of his stuff, he it's very external. Like you don't really go deep into. The Punisher's thoughts, and I. So yeah. one of the big differences I wanted to do with War Journal was to use the War Journal entries to go a bit more into the internal workings of the character, so that there was yeah. a difference between the two books, even though it's the same character. But one of the reasons I started doing War Journal is Mike. I kept coming up with these ideas for Punisher stories, but Mike didn't meet, need me feeding him ideas. He was like a fountain of ideas. <laughs> yeah. So and the character had gotten so popular that I decided to to see if. Uh, Marvel would be interested in doing a second book where I would write it and do the layouts. And since I was editing full-time, the only way I could do layouts is if it started out on a six-week schedule instead of a four-week monthly schedule. So they agreed to that, but that book got so popular quickly that they decided that uh, it really needed to go monthly. And, you know, Tim Lee, he'd been working for me already a year on Alpha Flight and had been growing in leaps and bounds. He didn't need me or anybody else doing layouts for him. So I said, okay, <laughs> screw it. So I, when, when I joined the Marvel staff in 83, that was around the time I thought I was getting ready to maybe get on a regular book and try and, and you know make a mark that way as an artist and a creator in general. But when I started editing, there was just no time to do that. I would still do occasional covers or posters and so on. I did layouts for a lot of things that particularly covers in, from out of my office, but not not a lot of finished work. So I kind of think I was so itching to, to do something on a regular basis, on a regular book art-wise, that I really wanted to try and pull off doing the writing and the layouts on Punisher Word Journal, but I could only get five out of the first seven issues. Uh, yeah. And, or it was just... It wasn't going to work when they wanted to bump it up to monthly. Well, I, I also, I just gotten married too, so. Oh uh, yeah, okay, yeah. That 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 I, makes I was, a lot of sense. I I think yeah. it's it's interesting though that after you guys had that incredible explosion, and then it was it it, it 
of popularity for the Punisher. And he did that great work defining the character. And then the the other editor and other people came in who I felt as a fan understood it far less and produced far less compelling stories. I, and, and then ultimately the whole thing kind of fizzled out. And then there's all these weird, bizarre takes on 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 what you know. It's like the the Angel of Death Punisher and all that kind of stuff, Christopher Golden stuff. Just really, really fucking strange. I th- I mean, I think he's a great creator, but I think that that version of Punisher is truly odd. But th- but then really, I, and I've had, as you know, I've had quite a lot of conversations with with Garth Ennis, and he absolutely credits your version of the Punisher and Mike's version of the Punisher, Chuck's version of the Punisher with being the, really the, the DNA that fed into what he then very successfully did with the character about 20 years ago, which has really set the tone for the character ever since. The 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 the, the, the Ennis stuff is really, I guess, peak Punisher in a way. But he credits you guys with being absolutely the building blocks for what he then did with it. Oh, that's nice to hear. A few years ago, there's a big Punisher fan over here who kept asking me if I'd because I'd stopped pretty much reading most of the Punisher stuff after uh, I lost control of it when I got yeah. promoted. Because it was just, it was just too tough to to, yeah. to deal with the, the wonky stuff. But this fan sent me, "You got to read the Ennis stuff." Read, so he actually sent me some collections of it, and uh, I, I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. So I'm glad that he felt that you know oh, yeah. there was some nice inspiration there from our end. Because Garth's Punisher really falls into two different camps. There's his original Marvel Universe version, uh, and where he has him interacting with the various superheroes of the Marvel Universe. And what works about that is Garth's not a fan of superheroes. He's got (laughs) hence the boys and whatnot, right? He's got no interest in that form. And so the way Frank interacts with all of these characters is by treating them with massive disdain. Yeah, and he always outthinks them, and, and kind of make. There's, so there's a great uh, there's a great issue where he interacts with the Punisher and uh, with with the Wolverine, and essentially keeps on seriously maiming Wolverine to keep him at bay, uh, knowing that his healing factor means he's ultimately going to be okay. So he does. So Wolverine spends half the issue with his face completely blown off, and it, 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 and his tongue blown out, his adamantium skull revealed, while coming up with all these like Wolverineisms. I mean, and it's it's. You know, it's played for laughs, and there's an issue where he essentially uses Spider-Man as a human shield, an unconscious Spider-Man as a human shield throughout the entire episode. And and then there's that stuff, which is very funny and is quite similar to the boys in tone. Mm-hmm. And then he has the Max stuff, which is really the next logical step of what you guys were doing, I mm. think. You know, and and is is that real world kind of Punisher? But I think he he also. He, his philosophy of who the character is is identical to yours, which is that mm. he's the obsessed guy on a mission. He doesn't do anything other than live through this kind of joyless task that he's assigned to himself. Yeah. So that, it, I think, I think, so therefore, stuff like the successful Netflix show, that's really the, all the DNA of what you guys were doing is in all of that, I think. Yeah, though they did some things in the in the show or in the early ep- or the episodes where he showed up in Daredevil that some of the stuff I thought, you know, if I was involved with the show, like him going through a hospital with a shotgun blasting away, there's no way in hell <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Would, be, would be doing that. <laughs> or or when he's got Daredevil, he's interrogating Daredevil chained up on a rooftop, and the the superintendent of the building is trying to come up to the roof. And the Punisher 
is ready to kill this guy if he insists on coming up to the roof. It's just like the friggin' super. You know, the <laughs> yeah, right. idea would never do it. And the only reason he doesn't is because he finds out the guy's a former Marine. Yeah. And just like, give me a break. Yeah, you know, that's right. what it takes for him not to pop somebody. That's not the character I want. Yeah, you, know? you got it. Yeah, yeah. That I, I, I take your points. I think that's um. But that's, but I did end up. I was supposed to be an extra on. I forget if it was for the first or second season. But there's a, a scene that recreates um the carousel, the going yeah. down carousel with the family and all that. So I was an extra around that carousel, which is supposed to be the Central Park carousel, but it was actually out in Queens somewhere. And when they, I ended up on the cutting room floor, as they say. Oh, uh, yeah. Or showed up on, on screen there. Uh, oh, man. Well, at least you got to be on set and when they, when they were and interact with everybody. You yeah. know, did, so did you get to, did you get to meet, did you get to chat with John Burnthorpe? No, I, I I was really close to him on a few cases, but I figured, you know, don't be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so. if anybody has got the right to be that guy with that character, it's you, mate. So I so guess. I think- but, but they, for all I know, those people have never paid attention to the comics or the or the people who worked on them, and you know, wouldn't care, and it would just might come off very awkwardly. So yeah. <laughs> Hey Carl, let's 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 close out on your World War II project. I mean, so that's nicely circular. It seems to me that you know the way you got into comics is via the DC War books. Also, by the way, one of the ways I got into comic books because my grandfather Pops he he loved the DC War books, really loved them much more than he he liked the Marvel War books, which he didn't consider to be war books. He thought Sergeant Fury was essentially just like the Marvel westerns. It's the same template as the superhero books. Actually, it's just Lee yeah. Kirby doing 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 World War Two, but he absolutely loved all the all the Kaniger DC books and he loved Kubert's art and he loved yeah. Rossi's art. But the fact that you started there and now one of your current projects is the war book that you're working on. What's the premise of that, mate? My, both of my parents were involved in the Pacific theater. My father yeah. was a 20 year Navy man, chief of damage control on a um, seaplane tender ship. So, you know, out in the middle of the Pacific, uh, whether it was uh, stormy or not, or, whatever, the big Catalina PBY planes that were running out of fuel or were battle damaged and needed repair, they'd have to go out there and, and work on them. But my mother's side of the family had an even more interesting, my my maternal grandfather was of Irish descent from Alabama, a coal mining country, and he did not want to be a coal miner. So he joined the Navy and uh, was stationed in the Philippines in the early 1900s when the U.S. took over control from Spain. And he loved it there so much that he was like, not your stereotypical Alabama country boy. He had no prejudices whatsoever. He had friends of all types. The Philippines was like the crossroads of the world back then. They had everybody from everywhere there, particularly in Manila. And he fell in love with it and decided when he mustered out of the service that he would stay there and work for the Navy as a civilian. And in the early 1900s at some point he went to dinner with to a friend's house and the friend had married a Japanese woman and as he walks up to the house he sees this other Japanese young Japanese woman brushing her hair through the window and he was just smitten and it was my uh, maternal grandmother who was visiting her aunt from Japan she was Japanese born and raised 
And they couldn't even speak the same language, but they fell in love and eventually got married despite her family's reluctance for her to marry outside of them. And she decided from that point on, she was an American. She learned English. She dressed in Western dress. The only time she spoke Japanese is when she was speaking to someone who couldn't speak anything else. And she didn't teach her kids Japanese, just English. And the one thing she couldn't give up, though, culturally was the food she was a great japanese cook yeah Um, but they grew up uh this big family in the philippines during the depression but over there they were living very well the depression was not affecting them but then when the japanese invaded at the start of world war ii they very brutally took over the philippines and they took all the american civilians and allied civilians and put them into prison camps internment camps and the biggest one was in the heart of Manila. They turned the University of Santa Tomas campus, which took up a city block and was surrounded by these high masonry walls, made a natural prison. So they just poured thousands and thousands of allied civilians in there. And the Japanese hated my grandmother for marrying the enemy, uh, but they weren't about to put her and all her ch- him, her but into the prison camp with her husband and all of her children. So she worked her way up the chain of the command to the general in charge of the area and convinced him that she was an American by choice and she was a mother who needed to be with her children. And she was being abused all the time. She was working with the ranks. They were, you know, even before they put her children away, they like, they were like roughing her up in front of her children because she refused to tow the country line. So finally, the general relented and wrote her a pass into Santa Tomas. As far as I know, she's the only Japanese civilian who was voluntarily imprisoned by the Japanese during the war, at least in the Philippines. And they were in there for over three years being progressively starved. And occasionally the Kempai Tai, who were basically the, the Japanese Gestapo, they would come in and haul out people that would never be seen again. And there was no medicine and, and so on. So when MacArthur finally returned with the U.S. forces, they learned through uh, their guerrilla spies that the Japanese were planning to kill all their prisoners before they could be liberated. And it already happened on the island of Palawan, where all the U.S. Uh, troops that were there were, were butchered. There's only a few that escaped to tell the tale. Yeah. Um, so... MacArthur felt extremely guilty for leaving all these civilians behind and the military people behind. And he actually knew a lot of the civilians. Uh, he had had his home on the top floor of the Manila Hotel. Uh, had been there for decades. All his possessions were left behind there. And apparently my grandfather had been MacArthur's coach for his Shriner's entrance exam. So they, they knew <laughs> wow. each other. Um, but when MacArthur heard you know, that the Japanese are planning to kill civilians. He put together this force called the Flying Column, which was the first first cavalry division in the 44th Tank Battalion, told them to drive 100 miles through enemy lines to Manila and liberate that camp and a, a few other areas. And they weren't to stop for anything unless they had no choice. So they were often in firefights while on the run there. Yeah. Um, and over the years, you know, when I was growing up, my I spent a lot of time with my grandmother when I was young. She was just grandma. I had no idea what a tough broad she was or what she went through. Yeah. They, the family didn't talk about this stuff much, but they were eventually liberated or I wouldn't be here because my mother was a girl in that camp. But so they, this, this force had to drive 100 miles through the Japanese help lines to get to Manila. And when they get there, the Japanese forces are methodically blowing up and burning 
all of Manila. And they're killing all the civilians they can find. And so this force is just, this U.S. force is just going into sheer chaos and they're having trouble even finding where they're supposed to be going. And some guerrillas help them figure out the best streets to get there. And they they liberate the camp and the the commandant takes a bunch and his guards take a bunch of prisoners hostage. And after negotiations for a couple of days, the Japanese are allowed to leave with just their personal arms, but they have to be the, the terms that were agreed upon. They had to escort the U S had to escort the Japanese force to the Japanese lines in Manila but no one knew where the lines were. So the Japanese that were being marched out, surrounded by the 1st Cavalry Division, kept saying, you have to escort us further and further. And the U.S. had gone, nah, I think we've gone far enough. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you can actually see photographs of, of, of Carl Maidens, who was a life photographer who had been a prisoner in Santa Tomas, actually took photographs of this march out into the Manila streets with this group. So... After the war, well, the war is still going on. I liberated my grandfather. His whole life has been destroyed in the Philippines. So he takes his Japanese wife and all of his half-Japanese children to his family in Alabama while the war is still going on. And my poor uncle, Walter, who was the youngest, had to enroll in high school while the war is still going on. And he's this little skinny kid who's trying to regain his weight. Yeah. And he's getting jumped for a month every day after school by the bullies. Fortunately, my grandfather had given him boxing lessons when he was a kid. So eventually, after enough bloody noses, they stopped jumping him. Yeah. Um, but they, the respect that my grandfather, who was a very tall guy, had in Alabama prevented my grandmother from being harassed yeah. there. But eventually, they moved out to the Bay Area in San Francisco, which is uh, where I was born. Yeah. So after when there was only four of my aunts and uncles left in 1995, I got them together in California and grilled them mercilessly with a tape recorder on about their life before, during, and after the war. And I did a lot of research and I started attending the reunions of the survivors of the prisoner camp and their liberators. And I interviewed a lot of those people. And there were just these fascinating stories that you never read in the, in the history books. For instance, the, uh, gunner of the first tank, the battling basic, the first Sherman tank that broke through the gates. I interviewed him and he said that a few days later during the Battle of Manila, they were trying to take back the Manila Hotel and MacArthur had one of his apartments taken back intact, even though the Japanese were torching and blowing up all the buildings. So this gunner is on top of the turret of his uh, Sherman with the 50 caliber shooting at these snipers running around the roof of the hotel. And there was one sniper in particular that was hidden behind this corner, on the corner. And he kept shooting and shooting, shooting at this guy. Couldn't get him. And like, I think it's every fourth round is a phosphorus tracer round. It was very hot. And eventually that corner caught fire from all yeah. MacArthur's apartments burned down. And everybody just assumed because the Japanese are blowing up and torching the city, they started it. He never put that in his head. <laughs> he thinks he's the one that torched, accidentally torched MacArthur's. That's fantastic. And there was a Navy demolitions UDT guy who was a precursor of a SEAL, Pat Sutton, who I interviewed. And he had gone in as their demolitions expert. He knew all the Japanese munitions. And the Japanese were repurposing aerial bombs and sea mines to mine the streets and bridges 
And so he had to go out there under fire often to defuse these things so that the, the flying column could get past. He ended up eventually being a, a U.S. congressman from Tennessee. I think I got to interview him, but I just it, I, I collected all these stories and information that just aren't in, in books. And I ended up writing uh, first one screenplay based on my family's experiences as in Santa Tomas prison camp. And then I did another one that was about the flying column that went to rescue them. And because I hadn't done enough work on spec, I combined them and added some material and did sort of a uh, short miniseries type screenplay. Because my name isn't Hanks or Spielberg, it'll never, you know, <laughs> but I decided to turn them into a graphic novel. And I sh there's a, a relatively new graphic novel imprint of the Naval Institute Press here. That's the, the publishing arm of the U.S. Navy run yeah. out of Annapolis. And they started doing graphic novels and they really liked this project and good to do it. And originally I was going to do the layouts and Bill was going to do the finished art, but I was going too slow with all my teaching commitments. I do a lot of teaching at School of Visual Arts and elsewhere. And so we decided Bill would take over doing the layouts. And Bill has just, uh, just been turning out gorgeous work, but at a snail's pace. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just taking forever. So I'm not sure when it'll come out. I keep telling Bill, I hope this comes out in my lifetime. Uh, <laughs> but we'll how, see. But, but the work how, is just... Sorry, sorry. Carry on, carry on, please. I'm not saying, but the work he's doing is just gorgeous. How, how far into it is Bill uh, in terms of well, as the, a percentage of the book? The volume... Uh, the, it's being split in two, like I originally wrote the screenplays, one on the flying column and one on uh, Santa Tomas, which is called uh, Guests of the Emperor, because that was the euphemistic term that, that the Japanese used for their prisoners, your guests. And what, what's the flying column book called? It, it's just called the flying column. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So, so you know, the whole thing was laid out some time ago, and he's I, I'm guessing he's got maybe 20 out of 130 pages of fully fully drawn and ink. if you want later uh, remind me i'll send you um a few uh scans of some of the uh oh, this is absolutely right up my street I, I, I would love to see it and and when when the when the books finally publish i would love to talk to you about them again in detail because the whole subject is is very close to my heart because of course what connects me to not not actually the war in the pacific but the the european theater and to the american experience is is my grandfather pop smythe who who fought with an american unit so so he he spent all of his time in europe after d-day with the americans because I, I think i've told you this before but he was an anti-aircraft gunner and um and when, when when a lot of the American units landed on their, their allotted beaches at D-Day, as you know, the American beaches, Omaha and Utah, took some of the heaviest losses and were very difficult to take. And a lot of the support crew for, say, the Big Red One got wiped out. And so within two days of being in Normandy, Pops and his gun crew got attached to an American regiment and he spent the entire war with Americans. And wow. e eating American rations, which were delicious compared to British rations, because our supply lines have been decimated so long. So he was living off what he thought was the fat of the land. But with his rations every day, he got two cigarettes, a bar of bar of chocolate, a candy bar, and a comic book. So that's where he was first exposed yep. to timely comics. No Ribena? Like. No Ribena? Yeah, sadly not. No, sadly not any Ribena. <laughs> I think he was happy. I think... I got addicted to that stuff during those convention trips. Oh, yeah. <laughs> have you ever had warm rye? Have you ever had hot ribena? 
when I was visiting in Scotland, there was a restaurant I went to and they said, you know, hot Ribena. I'm going, what the hell? So I gave it a shot. Sure. It was good. Oh, oh it's totally addictive. It's, it's great for when you've got cold or flu. The problem is when the cold or flu, when you recover, it's very difficult to stop drinking it. And the, the stuff is pure fucking sugar. So, yeah. you know, you, see, you don't want to get too, too addicted to it. But this whole subject, and thank you for closing us out talking about these two projects because I would love to hear more about them and I would love to have sure. some detailed conversations about them when they actually publish, you know, we'll, we'll talk about them for forbidden planet and all, all, all that as well. But I'm so pleased that that's one of the things that you're working on now. And I think Carl, I think that's probably a perfect point for us to, to wind up this particular set of conversations. And we didn't even get into alien legion and we didn't even get into your teaching career, both of which we'll have to talk about on a future episode. Sounds good. Yeah. Thank you for joining me today, mate. I mean, you touched upon three massive areas of interest for me, uh, in addition to your career, which has always fascinated me. But I, I thank you for sharing those Dick Cow anecdotes. They were fantastic. And, and it's very interesting hearing about those those early and very formative days of The Punisher. And I can't it wait. Like it seems like there's a number of people that you talk to, that, including Garth, that World War II and the actual history and then the pop culture around it, like the TV shows and the movies we grew up with, that made a, you know, a major influence. It's, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I feel bad almost in a way for the, uh, the succeeding generations. Like the woman I, I'd married was like seven years younger than me. And her father was a World War II vet who yeah. flew uh, yeah. submarine hunters out of uh, Dunkswell or something. And she didn't know a damn thing about World War II history when I, I met her. And so I watched a bunch of documentaries with her and filled her in. And I felt that was sacrilegious that, that she didn't, <laughs> well, I, didn't know. I, th I think it's fascinating because if you're, if you're an Englishman of my generation, that World War II was still a rich seam of entertainment throughout my entire childhood and only really sort of abated I would guess when I was in my mid to late 20s so for example all British comics with the exception of 2000 AD which was an outlier most British comics mainly featured adventure stories about World War II and they are right. certainly what Garth was raised on you know so there was there was there was the DC Thompson comic Warlord there was the IPC comic where I used to work battle and and all the guys who created for 2000 ad they they a year or two before they're all creating war books and it was such a big thing and we had loads of our tv shows still wrapped around the war and there was a very famous anglo-american co-production called cold it's which ran during the 70s all about the great prisoner of war camp and so and then uh Ten tenko yeah tenko tenko was huge yeah, yeah. of course and yeah and uh, Foyle's War, I love that. Foyle's War, yeah. Well, yeah. Foyle's War is relatively recent as well, so yeah. it still does continue. I mean, I, I, I of course, the, the 60s were awash with I was I was a kid in the 60s, but all those shows like Combat and the Rat Patrol and all of that stuff, they're all over the airwaves and there's still tons of war movies. What I quite like now is in the last couple of years, there's been to a degree a kind of selective war movie renaissance. So, you know, there there have been films like Dunkirk, for example, and 1917, both of which I thought were extremely well made. So, so while you, there might not be the amount, I think the war movies that do World War Two movies that get made now, World War One movies, they're of a very high standard, actually. Yeah, 
I always thought that uh, someone should make a film out of Charlie's Wire. I discovered that when I started coming up oh, there yeah. for the UK. Yeah. That was a brilliant series. Such but, a great uh, series. Yeah, Pat Mills and Joe Colhoun. Just, just great stuff. Really good. Yeah. Uh, and we didn't even talk about music either. That's another thing we, we have. Uh, we, we have in common. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. More ne- subjects for the future. Next time, brother. Thanks so much for joining me, Carl. I hope you've enjoyed it. I had a great time chatting with you. It was my pleasure. My, uh, indeed, I, I'll be happy to hear your call for some more. Excellent. You take care of yourself, mate, and I'll see you sooner rather than later. Sounds good. You've been listening to Hard Agree. This episode was edited by John Horsley and Kenry Regan, and our theme music, Golden, was written and performed for this show by Liverpool's finest band, Denio. Hard Agree is a production of the Spoilerverse and myself, Andrew Sumner.